a trusted voice of truth and light. God gave me a gift. I shovel well. I shovel very well. And a rally point for those who've accepted the reality that they are not sheep. We've got a blind date with destiny. And it looks like she's ordered the lobster. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Well, hi there, and welcome to the show. Brian Hyde at your service here. Our program is brought to you by Pure Light. That's pure-light.com. You want to hear about the most remarkable light bulbs in the world? Seriously, go to their website, check it out. Also, hslammo.com and monticellocollege.org. These are great sponsors. I have them listed in the show notes, actually links to all of their various websites, you can find those at thebrianhydeshow.com. These are today's show notes uh, for May 21st, 2021. Wow, where did this month go? I mean, you know, I'm not complaining because typically time goes fast when you're having a good time. It's, it's when things are hard <laughs> that it tends to slow down. But here we are. And thank you for being a part of this growing audience. Look, I believe the battle for your mind is real. And I mean... That in the sense that uh, there are people and organizations and, and schools of thought out there that are competing for your allegiance, competing for your attention. And by the way, I'm not going to tell you, and mine is the only one that's right, so that's the only thing you should listen to, because I, I don't know. There's some things that, you know, there's, I have an open mind, but at some point I've had to commit to the truth on a number of levels, so there are some things I'm pretty certain about, but I'm always open to new truth, and more importantly, I want you to think for yourself. You know, I've heard people talk about, yeah, you people, you're so into freedom, it's like some kind of a cult. I'm like, yeah, but it's the kind of cult that makes itself obsolete because it basically uh, brainwashes its members into thinking for themselves. So hopefully you'll understand when I say, I would take it as the greatest compliment in the world that the day comes that you say, Brian, it's been nice. You've been helpful along my journey, but I have outgrown you, and I'm going to move on and and continue on my own path. See, to me, that's the goal. It's not that, hey, wait a minute, you know, get back in line. You're supposed to be following me. I don't want to create followers. I want to I want to help create leaders. And that starts with thinking clearly and independently. So I've got some stuff to offer today that I hope you will find um, instructive, if nothing else. You don't have to accept it. It's just there to add to your understanding, whether you agree with it or not. Hopefully, it enlarges your perspective, and really, isn't that what it's all about? So I thought we'd start with something that most of us could relate to. That's anyone who's ever found themselves arguing over whose turn is it to do the dishes, or whose turn is it to do the laundry, or to pick up the dog poop, or whatever the case may be. That's, uh, That's where economics and family, the lines tend to cross right there. Because you can learn about uh, what happens, the division of labor and family, when you put it into an economic sense. There's a great article from the Mises Wire. This is from the Mises Institute, M-I-S-E-S dot org. And I'm going to butcher the author's name. I'm sorry. His first name is Gore. Gore Murchien? I'm sorry. It's, this, this is a name I've never seen before. But it's a marvelous article on family economics, specialization, and the division of labor. He says the family provides enormous economic advantages to daily life and civilization as a whole. 
But the extended and even nuclear family have been eroding thanks to changes in government policy, economic trends, and culture. So in this article, he says, I highlight how the nuclear and especially extended family supercharge human productivity thanks to the specialization and division of labor found within them. Now tell me if this doesn't ring true. He says every household, whether it consists of one adult or many, has a long list of challenges it needs to constantly meet. Earning income, taking care of children, house repairs, cooking, cleaning, doing laundry, etc. People can achieve a level of productivity beyond the sum of their individual productivities by coming together to form families. One reason is because specialization and division of labor increase efficiency through a variety of mechanisms. Robert Murphy's excellent textbook, Lessons for the Young Economist, details these mechanisms. Now, one of the mechanisms is called natural aptitude. And that just simply means some people are just born better at performing some tasks than other people. We all have different talents. When people live separately, while they only have to cook for one person, earn income for one person, do laundry for one person, they also have to learn to do a little bit of everything. Now, contrary-wise, in a family where one spouse is better at the other than earning money or making repairs or teaching the children algebra, etc., total productivity is maximized by having that spouse exploit their natural aptitude to the fullest by focusing on the tasks they're better at, as opposed to everyone performing a bit of every task irrespective of talent. Similarly, specialization also increases productivity because of acquired, acquired aptitude, The more you work at something, the better you get at it. It's difficult for a person living alone to achieve as much as skilled specialization because they have to divide their efforts over a larger number of possibilities, of responsibilities, rather. However, a family can exploit acquired aptitude by dividing the responsibilities among themselves and diving deep into their respective portion of the duties. Now, the next advantage of specialization and division of labor is that because each individual sticks to a smaller quantity of tasks, They spend less time transitioning between various tasks. Here's how Robert Murphy describes it. He says, picture something as simple as three children cleaning up the table after dinner. Most likely, the kids can get the job done more quickly if they divide up the tasks and specialize for the simple reason of cutting down on unnecessary walking. For example, one child can scrape the plates off into the garbage and carry the dishes to the sink. The second child can wash, the third can dry. This system is much more efficient. They'll all be done much sooner than if each child grabbed a dish, scraped it into the garbage, carried it over to the sink, washed it, then stepped to the right to dry the same dish and finally put it away. And that same principle applies to other productive operations. Now, going back to the article, he says, beyond washing the dishes more quickly, another way that many families reap this benefit is by saving on commutes, which which in the dishwashing example above is the unnecessary walking. So two individuals living apart both have to perform household tasks and commute to work. However, when two people form a family, having one devote themselves to housework and the other to earning an income outside the home can reduce the total time spent commuting, the number of cars needed, and the amount spent on fuel. Yet another benefit of the division of labor available to families but out of reach of people living on their own is economies of scale, which means that a doubling of inputs more than doubles the output. So, cooking spaghetti for a clan of 30 takes longer than cooking for a lone man in his apartment, but it doesn't take 30 times longer and in this way is more efficient. Murphy provides an additional example of this principle. 
when it, whether you want to make one cup or four, the prep work is largely the same, which is why people often ask, I'm making coffee. Anybody else want some? So we've outlined a number of ways families increase economic productivity, natural aptitude, acquired aptitude, less time lost alternating between activities, and economies of scale. Before moving on, though, he says, note that in each of these cases, the benefits tend to intensify as the number of people in the family increases. Because with more people, each person can specialize more deeply in a smaller quantity of tasks. So the real-world takeaway is that extended families tend to benefit from the division of labor even more than nuclear families. So societies that uh, have an increased likelihood of divorce work against these benefits of specialization and the division of labor. That is, in a setting where divorce is regarded as unlikely, it is more likely the benefits of specialization will persist over time. Now, this can affect the perceptions of married persons. It can affect how each person sees the potential value of investing in specialization within the family. But on the other hand, in a setting either general to society or specific to the marriage, where a spouse anticipates that a marriage is more likely to end, especially during child-rearing years, the risk of over-specializing rises. In these cases, it's more likely a spouse will avoid the same degree of specialization because, in the event of divorce, both spouses need to be ready for a life of relative autarky. As divorce courts have long acknowledged, a spouse who gives up a wage-earning career to pursue domestic disputes can end up in a more precarious economic position. Now, Gore McChean says, It's long been known there's a correlation between single parenthood and poverty. See, after reading this, it, it definitely makes more sense. Moreover, he says, the United States has one of the world's highest rates of children living with single parents. And this share of single-parent families has tripled since 1965. The cultural impacts of these trends are, of course, significant, but we almost must consider the economic effects. A society that places little emphasis on building families is also a society that abandons the many economic benefits of family life derived through the division of labor and economies of scale. Now, I know you and your family, like mine, probably don't sit around the dinner table talking about economies of scale and specialization and division of labor. What we do, we just do it in ways that aren't recognized. We don't use the terms that economists use. But it's pretty cool to see illustrated examples of how economics plays out. Because at its heart, really, it's how people interact with each other. And since family's the basic unit of society, yeah, there's a lot of that interaction. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. All right, welcome back to the show. You know, I've been guilty of uh, referring to the uh, lack of people willing to fill open jobs as a labor shortage. Talked about it on the show, you know, the time I spent working at a, a local convenience store. Um, it was really interesting to see. Um, this, I mean, this is not like, oh, yeah, you know, we, we need somebody to, uh, you know, render these hogs down into lard. And, you know, it's it's not like it was horrible, back-breaking, you know, disgusting work. Mike Rowe, you know, would have said this isn't a dirty enough job to be interesting. That's, that's how mundane it might have been. But it was honest work, and yet it was so hard to find people who would, would you know, fill this job. 
And so I've seen a lot of different articles. Well, is there a labor shortage? I mean, you see help wanted signs all over the place. And I've been guilty of referring to this as a labor shortage, but I just read an article from John Stossel that was very enlightening because he points out, look, this isn't so much a labor shortage, it's an incentive shortage. And if you have been out to, let's say, for instance, if you've gone out to a restaurant lately, sometimes you might notice that uh, they'll ask you, hey, please be patient, we're very short-staffed. There's only, you know, two or three of us trying to handle the whole thing. And, um, it's, it's really unusual. You would think, after all that time being shut down, people, oh, if only I could work. What on earth could keep them from getting back into the labor force? And if you said government checks, well, you're right. That's exactly what it would be. Here's how John Stossel explains it. America has a record 8.1 million job openings. Now, the media calls it a labor shortage, but he says it's not a labor shortage. It's an incentive shortage. No one wants to work, says a sign on a drive through speaker in Albuquerque, New Mexico. Please be patient with the staff that did show up. Now, Stossel's great on this. He's, he's honest, first of all. He says, I never wanted to work. I got a job because I had to support myself. That was good for me. It forced me out of my comfort zone. It made me a better person. Had the government offered me almost equal money not to work, I never would have applied. Today, government takes away that incentive. The American Rescue Plan, passed in March, increased unemployment payments by hundreds of dollars and extended them for up to 73 weeks. Given the cost of commuting, etc., many people find they are better off financially not working. Denmark once offered workers five years of unemployment. Then they noticed that workers found work after exactly five years. So Denmark cut the benefit to four years. Then most workers found jobs after four years. Now Denmark wisely has cut benefits in half. Why? Because incentives matter. America's unemployment handouts began during the Great Depression, when desperate people really still needed help. But you could only collect for 16 weeks. Former President Barack Obama extended unemployment benefits up to 99 weeks. Now, Stossel says that to the people he interviewed waiting in line for benefits in New York City said there are no jobs. But he says that's not true. There were lots of entry-level jobs within walking distance. In fact, he says my staff visited 79 stores. 40 said they wanted to hire. 24 said they would hire people with no experience. People in the unemployment line also said that the government should do more to train them for jobs. But New York already offered job training centers. So he says, I sent out an intern to see what they did. The first offered to help her get welfare. A second told her to apply for unemployment. Neither place suggested looking for a job. Interesting. When she insisted she wanted work, not handouts, they directed her to yet another building. There she was told she could not receive help because she didn't have a college degree. Finally, a fourth office offered her an interview at a sandwich chain. The boss there told her she'd wasted her time going to the government job center because she could have gotten that same interview using Craigslist. Now, some politicians understand that handouts encourage dependence. Sixteen states are now ending extra unemployment benefits early. Oh, by the way, you've probably heard some of the uh, outcry. Oh, why would you do this? This is the worst thing you could ever do. Montana and Arizona replaced extra unemployment benefits with a bonus for people who actually find work. Even President Joe Biden has noticed the unintended consequences of his party's benefits. If you're offered a suitable job, you can't refuse that job and just keep getting unemployment, he said. 
seems more than reasonable. Yet a New York Times headline says some say it presents an undue hardship. Oh, that's right. <laughs> we, we're, we're slowly but surely turning into snowflakes. The uh, reporter interviewed a Mr. San Martin, who uses the pronouns they and them. Oh, sorry. I'm sorry. It's mix, MX. Anyway, Martin wants to work with pets. They complained that there simply weren't enough jobs that I actually would want. Restaurant work is not in my field of interest. John Stossel says, too bad. Bad for all of us when people think they're entitled to our tax money if bureaucrats don't get them the exact job they want. Okay, so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to take off on a slightly different tangent here because I think this is related. And it's also something that I, I find that I was guilty of for, for a large portion of my adult life. And that is what, what I call the employee mindset. And this is not to make you feel guilty, but if you recognize, oh, wait, I, I still think that way. You're not alone. A lot of people do. And it's the, the mindset that says, I got to find a job. I got to find somebody who will hire me and give me a job and pay me to do this work and give me a regular paycheck and benefits and whatnot. But someone has to create that position, which I will then fill when they hire me. I mean, this is, this is pretty much the model most of us grew up with, right? I mean, it's the standard script for life. Okay, go to school, study hard, get good grades, go to a good college, get your degree, and then have a long life of hard work and happiness, <laughs> right? But the whole thing is it's, it's preparing you to go get a job from somebody. Okay, here's the twist. Who creates those jobs? And it's entrepreneurs. It's, it's business people. It's people who are in the habit of creating value. They're not waiting for someone to create something and then say, hey, I want to come work for you. That's the employee mindset. I need someone to hire me and give me a job because I don't want to go through the trouble of starting a business myself. I don't want to, you know, I don't want to take the risk. I don't have the capital. It's hard and I might have to work more than 40 hours a week. Yeah, small business owners, you're all <laughs> raising your eyebrows going, really? 40-hour week, I wish. Because they're in the habit of working as long as it takes. And that's a lot of hours, especially for a business that's just starting out. So I'm not sure how you accomplish this. I know that I've, I've actually, in my own life journey, finally reached the point, it was about a year ago, I reached the point where I had to make a decisive step into my own shoes. Be my own boss. And by the way, my boss is kind of a jerk, so I'm just going to put that out there. Nonetheless, <clears throat> the mindset of a person who is pursuing a sense of mission or <clears throat> maybe a sense of calling or just that desire to create, to make something where there was nothing before, these are just a few of the qualities that, that underlie that entrepreneurial mindset. Now you may be thinking, but that's just not me. And I, trust me, I understand, because that's what I've said for a very long time, most of my life, in fact. But lately, I have been learning how to look around me and see and recognize, I guess it would be more appropriate, all the different things in my life that have created value, or make things easier, or have, have enabled me to do my job with greater efficiency, the fact that I can do my job from home, it's huge. It's, a, it's an immense blessing. 
But the reason I can do so is because there were people who were willing to get out there and be innovative and uh, willing to take the risk to create something that there was no guarantee it was going to succeed. It was just a good idea or a way to create value. And they did it. In some cases, maybe they saved up the capital or raised the capital to do what they needed to do. Sometimes they had to go and find investors and convince them it's worth your time to buy in on this. But the bottom line is they did it. They didn't sit around and wait for someone. Hey, can you give me some, can you support me? No, I don't want to do that. I'm, I'm better than that. I'm holding out for a management position. It comes down to incentives. And if your incentive is to create value for others, you're going to go far. If your incentive is to collect a paycheck, well, the opportunity's there. But it's hard to remember when checks are being handed out right and left. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. All right, welcome back to the show. You know, we call ourselves the land of the free and the home of the brave. And, you know, I'm not going to argue. I mean, I love the Star-Spangled Banner as much as anybody. I, I love my country. I want to believe the very best about it. But isn't it crazy that out of the, this land of the free, I'm sorry, the home of the free and land of the brave, isn't it kind of weird that only three states explicitly recognize parents have the right to allow their children to experience freedom without being charged with child neglect? Now, I know it's fun to think back, of, okay, when we were kids, what did we get to do? What kind of freedoms did we have? And I know there are some who would say, well, you had too much freedom. I don't agree with that. I think, I think we had plenty of freedom. And sometimes, yes, we abused our freedom. Typically, it involved fireworks, but hey, you know, that was another time, another place. But it's just crazy. People who call the cops on, on uh, you know, I saw a couple of kids walking home. Well, how old are they? Uh, eight and five years old. Oh. Well, how far, how far are they walking? I, I don't know, but they're all alone, and, and I just think they're being neglected. And then the police get involved, and Division of Family and Child Services gets involved. And, and all it is is kids walking home from the park. They lived less than a mile away. I'm, just, I'm using one example I'm aware of here. Um, Lenore Skenazy, who has been, uh, she, she jokingly says she's been labeled the worst mother in America. She has uh, led out on this idea of raising free-range children. And it's not that you're just, you know, hey, kids, you're on your own. You know, you go do your own thing and, you know, don't bother mommy. You know, it's, it's I, I can't be bothered right now. My soap opera is on. No, it's, it's a matter of letting kids have enough freedom to, to learn that they can do things for themselves. Now, granted, some of this stuff, I don't know if I'd be brave enough. I think she took her uh, eight-year-old, I think he was eight years old, her eight-year-old son, and they planned out how he would take the subway to someplace deep in the heart of New York City and meet her there. He would travel by himself. And as I recall, they, they prepared for it. They did a couple of dry runs just so he would understand. And then he did it. And I know some people say, oh, that's so irresponsible. How reckless. Why would you put an eight-year-old kid at risk like that? Look, you're at risk even if you're an adult. But can you imagine the sense of accomplishment and the sense of confidence that kid has 
in knowing that he can trust himself to make the right decisions and make the right choices because he safely arrived, okay? We can talk all day about, well, this is what might have happened. Yes, and Martians might have come down and abducted him and done who knows what, you know, to learn about the human species. But they didn't. And instead, he, you know, got exactly where he was trying to go. I think we let our fears run away with us. Maybe this is why states are so reluctant. Uh, Lenore Skenazy says, hats off to Texas. Over the weekend, it became the third U.S. state after Utah and Oklahoma to make reasonable childhood independence the law of the land. Meaning, now parents who live there cannot be investigated for neglect simply for giving their kids some old-fashioned freedom. Now, amazingly, the bill became law on the 11th anniversary of Take Our Children to the Park and Leave Them Their Day. That was a holiday created by free-range kids and once considered so wacky, so dangerous, that it was splashed across the pages of the New York Daily News. The paper quoted the mother of an 8-year-old saying, Never in a million years would I do something that stupid. When the kid turns 18, fine. Until then, you watch them. And, of course, it spoke to an expert, the chief psychologist at uh, Memonides Medical Center in Brooklyn, who said that a 7-year-old shouldn't be left alone in a backyard, much less a park. Now, Lenore Skenazy says, too bad for that shrink. When Texas law goes into effect in September, more than one-tenth of all Americans will live under laws passed with the help of Let Grow. That's the nonprofit that grew out of free-range kids that insist our kids are smarter and safer than our cowering culture gives them credit for. HB 567 enjoyed bipartisan support sailing through the Texas Senate unopposed, winning the House with a vote of 143 to 5. That's a pretty decisive victory. She says the statute enshrining childhood independence is part of a bigger children's services bill ensuring ensuring Texans that the state will not intervene and remove kids from their homes unless the danger is so great and so likely that it outweighs the trauma of entering the foster care system. Removing a child from his or her family causes immense harm to the child and should be done only when absolutely necessary. That's Representative James Frank, a Republican who was one of the bill's co-authors. This new law, the product of years of work from stakeholders of all types and legislators of both parties, he said, gives the authorities those marching orders. And it does so because it changes our definition of neglect. That's Representative Gene Wu, a Democrat. So from now on, kids will only be removed when they're actually in danger, not just the possibility of danger. Skenazy says this way the bill not only protects parents who want to let their kids play outside, but like according to Diane Redleaf, the Let Grow's legal consultant, it also enables parents struggling to make ends meet, to make childcare arrangements that make life easier rather than harder. In other words, it prevents poverty from being mistaken for neglect. Andrew Brown, Distinguished Senior Fellow for Child and Family Policy at the Texas Public Policy Foundation, thinks the bill will come as a major relief to working families. Brown says, say you're a single mom, you have to catch the 7.15 a.m. bus to get to work, but your babysitter's running late. If the mom misses that bus, she gets to work late and loses her job. How does that help the child? If now she can't pay her rent, so she leaves her child home alone for 15 minutes. The new law makes sure that such circumstances do not result in neglect charges. It would have been most welcome in 2015 when Houston mom Laura Browder was arrested for having her kids wait 30 feet away from her in a food court when she had a job interview there and didn't have time to line up childcare. The arrest came after she had accepted the new job. At the same time, the bill also helps folks who choose not to helicopter parent, like Austin mom Carrie Ann Roy, whose case made headlines in 2014. 
Roy was at home while her six-year-old played within view of the house for about 10 minutes. A passerby marched him home and called the cops. Police officers paid Roy a visit, and a week later, child services interviewed each of her children separately. They asked the boy, 12 years old, if he had ever done drugs. They asked the 8-year-old girl if she'd seen movies with people's private parts, something she'd never even heard of. Thank you, CPS, Roy said. That kind of thing is in the rearview mirror now, at least in Texas. Brown says you had the most right-wing members of the legislature signed on with the most left-wing members. The bill was so popular because it's a common-sense reform. As common-sense as taking your kids to the park and leaving them there when you know they're ready, no matter what some passerby or bureaucrat thinks. That's good stuff. I did an interview a few years ago with uh, Connor Boyack, and we, we interviewed Lenore Skenazy. And I know some people think of her as a radical. I mean, come on, they call her the most dangerous mom in America. That's, uh, that's pretty pejorative. But she's a very down-to-earth person. And I really believe her heart is in the right place. I don't think she is trying to... Uh, I don't think she's trying to flout laws or she's trying in any way to, to make people, you know, uh, consider being less than, than responsible. My big question is, when did this all change? At what point did we stop trusting that, uh, you know, it's okay to let the kids have some, uh, some freedom to do what they're going to do? And I, I want you to know, this is not like, uh, you know, this is so obvious, it's so self-evident, because I have tended to want to be that helicopter parent. With my kids, the idea, if, if you were to tell me, hey, Brian, you know, your kids are going to grow up, you know, on the east bench of Salt Lake City, Riding their bikes, starting at age eight. They're going to just ride all over the neighborhood, and, you know, it's, it's totally okay. You've given them some bike safety training, and they're going to be out all day with their friends in the summer. They know to come home when it starts to get dark. Well, that's the kind of freedom that my friends and I had. And, you know, we, we managed to make it work. We managed to get out there and 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 enjoy ourselves and... We, we had no problems navigating, you know, the, the traffic. I think the traffic's a little bit worse, but I got to tell you, the, the thought of turning my kids loose, even as they're teenagers, yeah, 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 go ride your bike everywhere. I'd be a little bit nervous. I think about something. It's a conversation my wife had with me a few years ago. The, the kids had done something. They, they had, uh, I think they had taken the initiative to make their own breakfast or something. They made a pretty big mess in the process. And I was mad. I was like, oh, look at this mess. Why would you guys do this? Don't, you don't even know what you're doing. And, and so I was criticizing the kids for, for making this mess or something. You know, they, I felt like they're, they're operating out of their skill set. But my wife brought me back to reality when she said, look, you don't want our kids growing up to be the kind of kids who can't think through anything for themselves. And I have to admit, she's right. She's absolutely right. When, when I thought about it, I was like, I don't want my kids to have to stand there with their hat in hand, you know, waiting for someone, anybody, please give me permission. I just need permission to go do whatever it is I need to do. I don't think anybody reasonable would, would want that for their kids. So, you know, free-range parenting, you know, it's not synonymous with uh, you're going to be irresponsible. It just means you recognize that uh, you've got to give them some room to grow. And depending on their maturity, some kids are ready for it at earlier ages than others. I mean, there are teenagers that probably still need a helicopter parent hovering nearby. Thankfully, they're few and far between. 
All right, we got to take a quick break, break. Rather, we'll be back right after this. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. All right, we are back. Hey, if you haven't subscribed to the podcast, I make it as simple as possible. Go to the show notes. You'll find them at thebrianhydeshow.com at the bottom of the page couple of handy links that you might want to take advantage of. One of them says, hey, subscribe to the podcast. That's the one you want to click on to subscribe. The other thing is, if as you're listening to this, you're like, hey, I kind of like this. This is, you know, you're giving me good information or maybe, Brian, I just just like the sound of your voice. Whatever it is, if you find value here, I would encourage you to consider becoming a patron. And we're talking a dollar a month, five dollars a month, ten dollars a month, whatever you feel, you know, you can afford. But I, I'm so grateful for those people who do this. This is, uh, you know, I, I approach this as a calling. I, I really do. And it's not that uh, I, I jokingly in my intro talk about God gave me a gift. I shovel well. I shovel very well. But I do think that God gave me some tools to work with. And I'm trying to use them for the best and highest purpose that I can, which is to proclaim truth, to to liberate the captive, to to inspire people to come to a higher level of thinking and reasoning and discourse than simply, you know, shouting bumper sticker slogans at one another. If that's something that uh, hits the right chord for you, I would ask you consider becoming a regular supporter. All right. On that note, let's move on to another article here. Um, I catch myself watching closely sometimes for the next crisis. And this isn't a sign necessarily that, well, you're just a pessimist, Brian. It's, be- it's because I'm trying to pay attention when something goes crazy, let's say, just say, hypothetically, a giant ship gets stuck in the Suez Canal. Hypothetically. Or, uh, you know, a, a gas pipeline shuts down. Or, I don't know, major flooding in the upper Midwest and, you know, cattle and the crops are destroyed. Something like that. I look for these crises because almost without fail, you will see government types step forward using these crises to justify claiming emergency powers. And there's a great article here from Judge Andrew Napolitano. The government's emergency powers myth. Pick this up off of LewRockwell.com yesterday. And he starts with a quote from ex parte Milligan from the Supreme Court of the United States back in 1866. Quote, the Constitution of the United States is a law for rulers and people equally in war and in peace and covers with the shield of its protection all classes of men at all times and under all circumstances. No doctrine involving more pernicious consequences was ever invented by the wit of man than that any of its provisions can be suspended during any great exigencies of government. So, Judge Napolitano says, Last week, the media in New Jersey began to ask Governor Phil Murphy when he would surrender his emergency powers. He claimed emergency powers in March 2020. He also claimed those powers are not limited by the Constitution when he said on Fox News that the Bill of Rights is above his pay grade. His reply to the media inquiries was that he will surrender them when he surrenders them. Who? <laughs> now, Napolitano says, I'm using the example of Murphy in order to address the concept of emergency powers, but there is no hyperbole here. 
Murphy quite literally issued executive orders barring folks from doing what the Constitution guarantees them the right to do. And he imposed criminal penalties for violating his orders, and he had folks who defied him arrested and prosecuted. Stated differently, he assumed the powers of the state legislature, which is to write the laws, and he violated his oath to the Constitution. He claimed that somehow he can interfere with the exercise of basic human freedoms like going to church, going to work, shopping for food, operating a business, assembling and traveling because he declared a state of emergency. Now, if the government declares an emergency, can it thereby acquire the lawful power to interfere with constitutionally guaranteed freedoms? Judge Napolitano says in a word, no. And here's the backstory. So this is the part you're going to want to remember. When the states formed the federal government in 1789, they did so pursuant to the Constitution. The Constitution was written to establish and to limit the federal government. In 1791, just two years later, the Constitution was amended to add the Bill of Rights. And the original understanding of the Bill of Rights was that it restrained only the federal government by articulating negative rights. Now, a negative right restrains the government from interfering with the exercise of a pre-existing right. Thus, the First Amendment does not grant the freedom of speech because it comes from our humanity, but it does prohibit Congress from infringing upon it. After the war between the states, Congress sent the 14th Amendment to the states for ratification. Its history is torturous and in part repellent, but it was ratified, and it is the law of the land. It has been interpreted and applied by the courts as imposing the Bill of Rights upon the states. Thus, any right expressly or arguably protected from federal interference by the Bill of Rights is protected from state interference as well. The Ninth Amendment, which today restrains the feds and the states, is the work of James Madison's genius. Madison, who chaired the House of Representatives Committee that wrote the Bill of Rights, wrestled along with his colleagues about the best way to protect unenumerated rights. Now, the big government crowd in Congress did not want any enumerated rights to be expressed. They argued that by listing a few, the unlisted rights would be subject to government assault. The small government crowd argued that by listing no rights as immune from government interference, the Constitution would invite the government to assault whatever rights it wished. So Madison's solution to all this was to add a Bill of Rights and to include the Ninth Amendment. That amendment recognizes that we all have pre-political, fundamental, natural rights too numerous to enumerate and prohibits all government from disparaging them. During the war between the states, Abraham Lincoln did more than disparage them. He ordered the military to arrest newspaper editors and even public officials in the North and confine them without trial because he disapproved of their criticism of him. One of them, Lambden P. Milligan, sued for his freedom and won. In a unanimous decision, cited hundreds of times, the Supreme Court rejected the concept that emergency somehow creates or increases government power. The court condemned emergency as a doctrine of the fruits of which none is more pernicious. This condemnation is still the law of the land today, and it applies to the states as well as the feds. Thus, no matter the exigency, war, floods, pandemic, fear, myth, individual natural rights protected from government interference by the Ninth Amendment, trump unconstitutional words of government officials and invalidate their efforts to enforce compliance. Murphy's orders contain, this is Governor Murphy in New Jersey, Murphy's orders contain empty words because they do not have the force of law since they were not legislatively created. 
and they directly contradict the Constitution and the Supreme Court's most definitive interpretations of it. When Murphy became the governor of New Jersey, he took an oath to enforce the Constitution. And whatever personal ignorance or mental reservations he may have had, the Constitution is the supreme law of the land. And every public official, federal and state, is bound by it. If government officials could declare an emergency whenever they wished and thereby be relieved of their obligation to defend the Constitution and the rights it guarantees, then no liberty is safe. Napolitano says, Because our rights are natural and individual, and because we did not all consent to their suspension, no government may morally or constitutionally suspend them. And we must resist all efforts to do so. Now, of course, there is a dark side to this. The government that has destroyed liberty and property has also immunized itself from financial liability for the consequences of those destructions. Yet, as Thomas Jefferson wrote in the Declaration of Independence, whenever any government destroys liberty and property, it is the right of the people to alter or abolish it. Ooh, those are fiery words. And I guess it's not surprising, but as, as I read this, I thought about uh, where are the people today who understand this? Where are the people who understand that because our rights are natural and individual, because we did not consent to these rights being suspended, no government, federal, state, or local, may morally or constitutionally suspend them. And in fact, we should resist efforts to do so. Now, there are people who are doing this. And the question is, are they doing it effectively? And, you know, there are varying answers depending on where you look. I honestly believe that Ammon Bundy and his organization, People's Rights, is possibly one of the best examples of how to go about pushing back against this uh, extraordinary claim of emergency powers by government. Now, is there risk involved? Yeah, yeah. How many times has Ammon been arrested? You know, five times like in the last year. And it's always because some bureaucrat got their knickers in a twist and I don't like the fact that uh, he showed up for court without a mask. And so we deny him entry to the courthouse and then charge him with failure to appear for his trial. I'm sorry, but that's that's not justice. I mean, people people who are good at, uh, you know, finding the, the legal minutiae. Well, actually, Brian, this is this is very uh, in keeping with legal tradition. No, it's not. It's petty tyranny. I'm sorry, I didn't need to go get my Juris Doctorate in order to recognize that, you know, somebody got to bend out of shape, that he was not complying with this order, not law, but order, to wear a mask. So we're going to make an example out of this guy. But the crazy thing is, you know who keeps coming back, who keeps fighting, who keeps pushing back against it? That would be Mr. Ammon Bundy. Like I say, I think he's on to something definitely one of the more courageous individuals out there standing up for his liberty this is the brian hyde show